You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Continuing on in our series of 1 Corinthians, and we're in chapter 4 this morning, so if you want to turn there, uh, you can follow along as we walk through the passage. And as you're turning there, I just want to make an observation that we have a generation of Americans, we are just kind of a culture of Americans, who for the most part uh, distrust authority, right? Uh, Many will say that this is the fruit or the legacy inherited from such cultural events even 50 years ago as Vietnam, Nixon, and Watergate. Uh, America is at an all-time low in trusting media. I mean, even when you think about the terms that are now used, like fake news and misinformation, just in our vocabulary, just a level of constant suspicion. And then if we're honest too, just even inside the house of the church, there have been many scandals where oftentimes the church has chosen to prioritize its own reputation over the safety and welfare of victims. For a lot of us, maybe it's the marketplace or a corporate world or a family or an institution, government media, whatever it is, we've just seen institutions claim to represent truth and morality, yet use power to perpetuate unjust practices and protect the powerful. We have become suspicious people uh, in general. And my point is, for good reasons or bad, we, we have a, a, a starting inclination where we distrust authority. And of course, this attitude, this distrust of authority affects our view of leadership in the church. And Paul's wrapping up this section of his letter where he's talking about what causes so much division and unhealth inside the church. And one of the key contributions of that, one of the key reasons there's often dishealth or unhealth in the church is a faulty view of leadership, of even understanding what is the role of a leader. So Paul wants to flesh that out. He wants to give a picture to the Corinthians. He's saying, your picture of leadership, it's distorted. It's worldly. It's not one that fits the kingdom. When Jesus came, he came to give a new ethical framework and system for how we should operate. And it's not the ways of the world, but rather it's the ways of the kingdom of God. So if you have a Bible, he starts right in verse one. He gives us a couple, and uh, well, let me say this. He gives us five things overall that he wants us to see about leaders. And those five things are the leaders are to be servants and stewards they're to be secure in their identity in Jesus. They're to be sufferers and models. I'm sorry, I couldn't get the last S in there. I tried. This is what he, he starts. He's saying, there's, this is how you should regard us. This is how he starts in verse one. This is how you should regard us. He's, he's wanting to say, hey, if you guys get your view of leadership wrong, a lot goes sideways inside the church. Uh, you know, and sometimes it can be natural for us. We import our understanding of what the church should look like, maybe from the marketplace or from the world around us, or maybe even from other sources. But Paul wants us to reframe and think about what leadership should look like. And let me be clear right up front. The Bible is pro leadership. It's not an invitation here toward anarchy, but there is an invitation toward leadership and authority. In fact, there is all sorts of thriving and fruit that comes in when we surrender and submit to authority. But how do we do that? We know there's good authority and bad authority. So Paul wants to give us a clear picture, but this picture is upside down from the world of what authority should look like. And let me just say, uh, if, if you're in this room and you aspire toward leadership, this is a great model and picture to emulate, to say, that's what I want to aspire and live my life to look like. 
And maybe if you're in this room and you don't think about leadership, you don't consider yourself a leader, let me just encourage you that you are a leader. What it means to make a disciple, the great commission that Jesus has given us, pushes us into spaces and conversations where we will seek to influence people, persuade them, and to direct them toward a certain destination. That, by definition, is leadership. And if nothing else, let this serve as a grid for how to evaluate and consider what healthy leadership should look like in the church. I mean, we should all have that. When you walk into a church, Stonegate, or any other church the rest of your life, I want you to have a good biblical grid for what leadership should look like and what it shouldn't. Because if we're honest, sometimes the evangelical church particularly, let me just pick on our own tribe, has a tendency to elevate leaders who are high on charisma, but they're low on character. We need to avoid that at Stonegate, don't we, church? Character matters. In fact, a church leader is always in very dangerous ground when their gifting gets out in front of their character. That's why Paul says, be slow in the laying on of hands in installing new leaders. Here's what Paul wants us to see is that leadership is not a code to crack, but a character to cultivate. So he's going to give us his picture in the rest of these verses. Uh, Look at verse 1 with me. This is what he says. This is how you should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So he gives us two characteristics of this picture. One, servants, and the other one, stewards. Let's look at each one of those. Servant literally means under rower. Like slaves deep in the galleys of a ship. This is the imagery Paul wants us to see who are rowing according to the orders of a captain above them. Paul is saying, this is how you should think of us. You should think of us not as big shots, not as super impressive people who are in the C-suite and the corner office where everyone caters to us, but rather we're servants who are listening to our master. Jesus reaffirms this in his teaching. He says in Matthew 20, verse 26, he says, who wants to be great? Well, it's not the way the world thinks of it. He says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be a servant. Did you catch that? Consider that for a second. He's equating greatness with a willingness to serve. Not competency, not education, not appearance, not charisma, but a heart posture that's willing to serve. In fact, a great rubric and evaluation for a leader is do they have an appetite to serve, to humble themselves? This is upside down once again, because a lot of the world is telling us that the whole point of being a leader is so that you don't have to serve anyone anymore. Paul's rebuking that, saying, not so with you. That's not part of the kingdom of God. Then he says this, that they're stewards of the mysteries of God. He uses an image that's typical for a a Roman household. A steward is someone who would be like a, a household manager, someone who's entrusted to carry out the affairs of a household. In this case, Paul says, we've been entrusted with the mysteries of God. He's not saying that they have some secret knowledge or something mysterious. Rather, what he's saying is that There was a time, there was a period in the Old Testament when people did not know of Jesus. They knew there would become a a way that God would put the world to rights, but they didn't know exactly how. And now that mystery has been revealed in the coming of Jesus and his work on the cross. So you are to be stewards of that good message, that your job is to carry that message forward. A Christian leader should bleed the message of the gospel, Jesus Christ on a cross and crucified for the sins of the world. 
This is the message of a Christian leader. With this in mind, you see that once again, it's, it's not necessarily to create their own agenda. A Christian leader who comes to the church and says, let me form it in my own ambitions is outside the bounds of what a leader is supposed to do. Rather, a leader is to steward and be true to making the truths of the gospel known to God's people. Stewards don't get to set the agenda, but rather they faithfully carry out the commands of their master. So sure, a leader should have a theological knowledge a leader should be theologically educated, but I would argue for, for all of us church, and just put this in your back pocket, that a great way to evaluate a leader is how surrendered are they to the will of God. Not their will be done, but God's will be done. And here's the thing about God's will. God's will often pushes us away from seeing leadership primarily as about what's in it for me. Where are the rewards? What am I gonna get out of this and so instead of reward-based, it's responsibility-based. You see the paradigm shift? Responsibility means what burden can I bear? Who can I serve? Who can I lift up and be faithful in sharing the message, the good news of the gospel with? Not what rewards can I get out of this? Friends, our churches, Stonegate needs leaders who will sacrificially serve and steward faithfully. He goes on in the next section where he wants us to see the next characteristic that a, a faithful leader, one who is a steward and one who is a servant is also secure in his identity. He knows who he is living for and he knows whose verdict matters. Look at verses two through five where Paul says this, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. That's that steward thing again. A steward needs to be trustworthy. But to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. Paul has a self-forgetfulness where he's thinking only about God. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait for the Lord who comes, who will both bring to light the things that are hidden in darkness and disclose the motives of men and their hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. Paul ultimately believes that is God's opinion that matters. God's opinion of your faithfulness. Notice, not necessarily success. A lot of ministry is not based on your success, but your faithfulness. He believes this so much that he won't let anyone else's judgment influence him. Catch that. He uses the word examine five times in just these couple verses. And what Paul wants us to see is he's saying, I know that a lot of this church, Corinthians, you guys are setting yourself up as a jury to evaluate me. You want to examine me? I'm telling you, your examination is not ultimate for me. This isn't saying that Paul's against feedback. In fact, I'd say for every leader, you need to be humble enough where feedback is your friend, where you're willing to receive feedback from friends and people that love you and sometimes even critics. But it does mean who is your primary audience? Who are you leading for? Is it the praise of men or is it for God alone? See, friends, if you want to lead, if you want to lead inside the church, I would just argue if you want to be a good leader in life, you are saying yes to pain and to being misunderstood 
At times, you will be unfairly criticized, and you can even feel a sense of futility. How many of you have served for a long time? Maybe you've served in kids' ministry or students or in a home group, or you're just serving, you're just being faithful. And there can be that sense of futility even, of like, is this even making a difference? Is anyone listening to me? I mean, parenting is an exercise in futility, right? You're just going like, did they hear me? (laughs) Is this making a difference? You know, like, is this thing on? You're tapping the microphone. But it's an exercise in futility. But here's where it is. You must lead by faith, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Even if you don't see the fruits of it, you know that you're still called to faithfulness. Discouragement is the occupational hazard of leadership. Paul is letting us know that. But, 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 but. If you've already heard the ultimate verdict, that is what sustains you. That's what fuels you. That's what keeps you. If you've heard God's verdict, if you're living for God's verdict, remember what Jesus says, live in light of the day where you stand before God and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. Notice we didn't say, hey, uh, we took a straw poll and most of the people around you, most of your neighbors, they liked you. So, you know, you did good. Or you kept a lot of people happy Uh, You kept everyone from being upset. He doesn't say, hey, you were a great people pleaser. But rather he says, you you lived into the good works that I had prepared in advance for you to do. You were faithful even when it felt futile, even when you felt frustrated, even when you felt unfairly criticized, but you lived in light of God's verdict. And friends, if you're in Christ, listen to me, this is God's verdict upon you. You're loved. You're loved. You're loved so much that God would die for you. You're valued. You're valued enough that God would die for you. And you're accepted. You don't have to earn your acceptance. You don't have to earn your approval. You've already been approved by God. Ministering and leading to people out of an orphan mentality will always lead toward anxiety. It'll always lead toward stress and wrecks. But when we remind ourselves, I'm loved by God, I'm accepted by God, I'm valued by God, I'm called by God, he's working even when I don't see it, there is deep security in there. Friends, I just want to put that wind in your sails today. Maybe you're leading in the workplace, maybe you're leading in your family, maybe you're leading in Stonegate, and you might even feel some of that futility and frustration and unfair criticism. I just want to encourage you, keep going, knowing that you have an audience of one. Paul moves on in this next section of verses to give us that next thing a leader must have is he's flipping that upside down view of leadership. And a a, a leader, a biblical church leader, a Christian leader must be willing to suffer well. That's not very American, is it? We don't like that. Here's what happens. Jesus, this is what it says. A leader in, in a way of Jesus, a leader who leads like Jesus must be willing to embrace the way of the cross rather than comfort and convenience. Look at verse eight. This is what Paul says. He says, you already filled, you are already filled. You have already become rich. You have become kings without us. And indeed, I wish you had become kings so that I may reign with you. Now we would be completely remiss to not notice that Paul's language here, if you're not catching it, is steeped in irony. In fact, if you love sarcasm, here's your life verse, because Paul's going full force on sarcasm. He's saying, you guys have become smug and self-satisfied and comfortable. You think you're filled and you don't hunger for righteousness. You think you're rulers and rich already, but I'm telling you, you've not arrived. 
In fact, that's the very thing that's wrong with you. You don't see clearly. You see yourself as kings and rich, but really you should have a poverty of spirit and a brokenness and contrite heart. Paul, with tongue in cheek, is saying, I wish you guys could see yourself clearly and more humbly and as a servant rather than kings and rulers. Paul goes on to puncture their massive pretensions by describing his status as a true leader. Paul says, let me contrast myself with you guys in verse 9. For I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. Paul is, is using an imagery, condemned to death. He, he, the, the audience, the original audience would have uh, drew to mind these triumphal processions of returning Roman armies. The senior military men would come in first. They would be most celebrated. Then the more junior ones behind them. And the prisoners would be dragged along among the defeated enemies. The slaves would bring up the rear, eating everyone's dust, knowing that they were destined to die in the arena at the hands of gladiators and thrown to wild beasts as a spectacle. They were for all practical purposes already dead men. They would be men who had abandoned all earthly hopes and ambitions. And Paul says, that's like us. We're already dead. We're dead to this world. We're dead to the the values of this world, the way this world does leadership, the way this world organizes its values, the way this world associates significance and status, but rather we're already dead so that others might live. Paul's taking an upside down view of leadership, not on top, but rather a foot washing basin like his master. Then he gives a glimpse of what a a true Christian leader looks like. Paul wants to continue to ratchet up the rhetoric. I love this. He says, to this present hour, we're both hungry and thirsty. We're poorly clothed and roughly treated. And we're homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. And when we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. Notice, notice what Paul is doing. He's responding to the taunts and the skepticism of the world. And he's saying, I don't respond with kind and kind, but rather I respond in the way that Jesus taught us in the Beatitudes. Rather than cursing, I'm blessing. He says, when reviled, they bless. When persecuted, they endure. When slandered, they answer kindly. How is this possible? Does your flesh wake up wanting to do that on Monday? Mine sure doesn't. You know what I want to do when someone reviles me? I want to revile them. You know what I want to do when someone curses me? I want to curse them. You know what I want to do when I feel misunderstood or someone wronged me? I want to be bitter and unforgiving until I get a pound of flesh. But Paul's saying that's not the way of the kingdom. You've been given a spirit, a spirit of freedom from all of that way of thinking. Notice that last phrase, Paul's saying it in a way that he wants to shock us. This is meant to like really get your attention. He says, we've become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, the scum of the world. The scum of the world was that that yucky, smelly stuff that got stuck in the bottom of your sandals and maybe between your toes as you walked around outdoors in filthy streets before you would even dare to go into someone's house or go into an establishment, you would sit down and you would scrape it off the bottom of your feet. For some of our 
our cowboys in here, you know, all the stuff you're going to scrape off your boots before you go in your mom's house. You know, all, and who gives that a second thought even really, right? It's to be gotten rid of. It's gross. It's not something admirable. Friends, are you seeing how otherworldly this is? This is so upside down. What kind of leaders posture themselves, not as the most prominent or important, but rather the most low, the most willing to serve, not with a high view, but a low view. See, friends, here's the, the problem, and I think it's a concern even for the American church because we live in America, it's kind of our context, and if Americans are good at anything, we're good at chasing after status and comfort and convenience. In fact, those are just kind of our natural, baked-in cultural idols that you and I live in every single day. And the Corinthian church had something similar that Martin Luther, the great reformer, he diagnosed this uh, Hundreds of years ago in his writing, he said uh, that the, the, the Corinthian church had a, a theology of glory, a theology of glory. What's a theology of glory? Well, I'm glad you asked. It's where you assume that God's presence on earth will always be accompanied by earthly vindications of success. Did you catch that? Think about that for a second. This is a little bit of a formula that gets a lot of disciples or followers of Jesus kind of sideways if you don't, you know, be able to diagnose it and see it rightly. You think to yourself, okay, I'll be faithful, I'll be fruitful, I'll do what the Lord asks me, but on the other side of that better be a big pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. There better be a lot of success, there better be a lot of fruit, there better be a lot of encouragement, attaboys and celebrations and affirmations, and it better go well. And Paul is trying to dispel this notion. He's trying to break the link that we have sometimes in our thinking that, that our, our work will always be successful. Sometimes it won't, friends. In fact, if you read the New Testament, any length of New Testament reading, you're going to bump right into story after story after story of people who were faithful but still met up against persecution and opposition and difficulty and hardship. Because friends, here's what the New Testament teaches. The New Testament doesn't teach a theology of glory, but what Martin Luther called a theology of the cross. Theology of the cross is that, that the one who was most perfect in all of the world was also the one who suffered the most in all of the world. Think about that for a second. Jesus, our master, the one we are apprentices to, we're following in his way. We're walking in the way of Jesus. So how dare we have some expectation that we also wouldn't experience suffering? That the way of a Christian, the way of a follower of Jesus is that you're picking up a cross, that you often will endure hardship and pain and loss and suffering and difficulty along the way. That's a theology of the cross. In fact, Philippians 3 reminds us that a lot of our discipleship process, and meditate on this later, it's Philippians 3.10, where it just says that we share in the sufferings of Jesus, and it's in sharing in those sufferings along Jesus that we become more conformed into the image of Jesus. So if you want to know what Jesus is doing in your suffering, look no further than your sanctification. How else do you learn to be more loving and peaceful and patient and gentle and kind and self-controlled than through suffering? and testing, and trial, and sometimes opposition, and difficulty. Uh, years ago, 12 years ago or so, uh, I was pastoring in Colorado at a church I loved. Uh, my wife and I loved living there. I had family nearby in Denver, just great church, great community, great friends. It was really comfortable for us. 
And I got an opportunity to, to go out to a church in Seattle and pastor up there. And uh, Crystal, my wife and I, we felt really called to do that. We felt like the Lord was calling us out of comfort, which Denver was for us, and to, to trust him, to be faithful in where he was leading us. And so, uh, you know, we moved away from family, we moved away from friends, and we decided to trust the Lord in faithfulness. And I ended up pastoring at a church that was a really well-known church in America, by all accounts was super successful, had all sorts of notoriety. In fact, it was one of the most well-known churches in America. And for a while, it was just like, it it was amazing. It was super fun and all sorts of uh, amazing growth and stuff like that happening. And uh, through a number of tragic leadership failures, and leadership mistakes, leadership sins, and leadership abuses, the church collapsed rather abruptly. Uh, a few days after the church collapsing and I lost my job and I'm just sitting on the couch in our living room in a state of shock. I just come out one morning with a cup of coffee and just pick up, pick up my Bible and start reading and I'm in John chapter 16. And the Lord just spoke to me so clearly in that moment. He, he did something that I've just held on to. It's just a, a defining moment in my life still to this day. I was reading John 16 and the words of Jesus and there was a promise that Jesus gave that sustained me and encouraged me and shaped my view of pastoral ministry ever since. Because here I was, I was trying to figure out like I'd left Denver, I'd left Colorado, comfort, convenience, lots of, you know, friends and family and all that. And I come out here and this whole thing just collapses and it's a mess and I'm mad and I'm angry and I'm hurt and I feel loss and pain. And Jesus says, here was his promise. You will have trouble. You will have trouble. And friends, that's not a promise you think about claiming that, uh, that often, right? Usually we want to claim other promises. But this was a promise that I, I claimed because in some ways it normalized what I was going through. It was like, oh yeah, Jesus had trouble. So why did I think I was going to be exempt from trouble? Jesus faced opposition. So why did I think I would never have opposition? I wanted to apprentice Jesus. I want to follow in the ways of Jesus. I better be prepared to live the lifestyle of Jesus. Friends, some of the best leaders, the best biblical leaders, small group leaders, kids ministry leaders, pastors, they're not perfect. They don't have it all together. Rather, they've learned to suffer well. They've learned in God's economy that suffering's not wasted, but rather it's redeemed. That our sorrow often turns into a story for someone else to be ministered to and loved. I had a pastor friend say to me around that season of my life where I just felt so much discouragement and loss and even just disillusionment with the church. I was just frustrated with the church. He said, the best leaders lead with a limp. The best leaders lead with a limp. So if you have a limp, if you've suffered well, friends, I just say that's the very thing the Lord wants to use for you as a leader. It's not a weakness, it's actually your strength because it's in your weakness that God's strength is made perfect. Plus, let me say this. If you're signing up for leadership, sign up for something that you believe it matters. You know, one of the most misused words in our culture is the word passion. We often use passion, like, hey, talk to a kid, like, what's your passion? What are you passionate about? What are you passionate? And we mean it culturally in the sense of like, what gives you a lot of warm fuzzies and makes you happy? But that's not actually what the word means. The word actually means you have found something you believe in so deeply, you're willing to suffer for it. 
Why do you think we call it the passion of the Christ? In fact, we're just about to celebrate that here in a couple of weeks. The reason it's called the passion of the Christ is because Jesus found something he loved so much that was so important to him, he was willing to suffer for it. He was willing to suffer a death, an excruciatingly painful death. Why? Because he believed so deeply in the work. A work that would redeem the world, that would atone for sin, that would reconcile broken, lost people back to his father. So leaders, you have to ask yourself, what am I willing to suffer for? Let me just apply it one more uh, for another second to parenting. Parents, just know that you're, I know know a lot of, of parenting is a passion work. It's work you suffer for because you believe it matters. So continue to be faithful, continue to trust the Lord in the middle of that. Church, we need leaders who will serve, who will sacrifice, and who are willing to suffer well. And last, look down at verse 14 and 16 with me. We need leaders that are imitators, that we can imitate, that we can imitate. We we need models, don't we? Paul tells us that leaders need to be models. Here's what he says. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I exhort you to be imitators of me. Paul's saying, here's our link. Here's my heart for you. A a biblical leader, a church leader should have a heart toward his people that's not transactional, but transformational. That's why he's using the metaphor of a parent. I'm not just your boss. I'm not just trying to up your productivity, but I want you to see that I love you, that I'm for you, that I want you to thrive. And also, I have enough confidence in my conviction. I believe what I'm preaching that I really can just say to you, do as I do. I'm going to practice what I preach. Leaders, if you're going to lead, you better be willing to look at someone and say, you can imitate me. There's not this big chasm of hypocrisy between what I say and what I do. You know, one of the fastest ways, parents, I'll just say this because we're just keep applying it to parenting. Uh, One of the fastest ways you can push your kids away from the church is proclaim something on Sunday and live completely different the rest of the week. That's one of the number one ways I see people just go, I'm out of here. Because we know this, don't we, parents? That our kids are watching us. That they're mimicking us. They're often going to love what we love. They're going to hate what we hate. They're going to value what we value. We're setting a tone. You know, it's that old cliche for a reason. But actions do preach louder than words. And Paul's saying, I have a heart of a father for you. That you can mimic me. That you can model after me. They have a deep love for you. And and how does this this love get exhibited? Well, he tells us in verse 21, and this is the work of a leader, okay? A leader that has a, a parental heart, a father's heart, is a lot of ministry, a lot of leadership is knowing when to be tough and when to be tender. Paul is saying to them, what do you desire? I'm going to come soon. Shall I come with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Friends, that's so much of us. There's got to be enough in us where we've got the ability to be tough and tender. For a lot of us in this room, if we were to describe ourselves, maybe we're too tough, maybe we're too tender, but really Paul's saying a good leader has a mixture of both and knows when to apply each one of those along the way. 
And Paul's telling us that, that, that as great as it is to have a sermon, and hopefully this sermon's been okay and helpful for you, but as Rodney even preached on a, a couple weeks ago, friends, I would just say what the American church desperately needs in this moment, along with sermons, but sermons are not enough, but it needs saints who will suffer that we can emulate and model and will serve sacrificially. And wouldn't that be amazing if that's what people thought of when they thought of Stonegate? Man, I don't necessarily know if I agree with all of them. I might not even like their theology. I don't like what they, what they believe about the Bible. But gosh, those people, they believe it. They're living it out. They're the real deal. This is why he says at the very end too, like the kingdom of God is not just about talk, but it's about power. It's a power that transforms. It's what takes dead people and makes them alive. Maybe you came in the room this morning and you don't know God. Well, I want to tell you right now, even today, God wants to take your heart of stone and he wants to turn it into a heart of flesh because the kingdom of God is filled with power, power enough to transform and take the dead and turn them into the living, powerful enough to take bitter people and make them brand new people. Powerful enough for you to forgive that person that you've long been harboring a grudge against. Powerful enough for you to lead even when it's hard and you feel misunderstood. Powerful enough for you to pursue obedience and faithfulness even when it feels like you're in the midst of futility. Let me just close with a, a very important word. And I just feel a, a burden to say this this morning, okay? The church is... And even Stonegate here, okay, we need to understand that the church is not primarily an institution, okay? It's a family. It's a family that Jesus purchased. And it's the confines in which a lot of our life change takes place. But families are messy, right? I've got a messy family. Anyone else have, you don't have to raise your hand. Anyone else have a messy family? But here's what I'd submit to you. Family is a mess worth making. And church is a mess worth making because where else will we go? This is Jesus's plan A, B, and C to see the redemption of the world, that God's people would be family to one another. But for some of you in this room this morning, I know maybe you walked in here and it took all you could do to even come to church. Maybe you have felt spiritual abuse. Maybe you've been hurt by the church. Maybe you're just jaded and cynical and you're mistrusting of anything. Well, I would just say, this is a moment where the Lord can provide healing you know, that, that the kingdom, once again, it didn't just come with talk, but it comes with power. And there's power to heal, to restore, to renew. So we're going to have some leaders down front after. I just feel like a burden. Today is a good day. If you find yourself just sideways with the church or far from community or suspicious of leaders or people or, or, or just even Christian people, I, I get that, okay? I just want to say too, like as a pastor, I'm sorry I'm sorry if that's your experience. I truly am. I've been there myself to know what it looks like to find yourself in a difficult spot when you think about the people of God. But here's what I know. I didn't want to stay there. That the church is a mess worth making. So we'll have people down front at the end of our service who would love to pray with you, who would love to help you pursue reconciliation and restoration and a safe place to experience healing and community. In fact, that's what this place is all about. Sermons are great, but we need a lot of servants who are willing to go serve sacrificially, love people well, suffer well, knowing that you have a God who is rooting you on, who loves you, who's accepted you, and has already approved you. Let's pray. 
God, you have been so gracious to us that your spirit comes and you don't allow us to just run far away, but rather you run toward us in the mess that every single one of us has blown it. We've gone too far. We said to you, Lord, not your will be done, but our will be done. But yet you move toward us, not to pay us back, but to bring us back into the fold. So Lord, I just pray for my friends in here this morning. If there's someone in here this morning that just feels a sense of like, I, I just, I get it. I just, but I just have all these distrust issues and authority issues and I've been burnt. Lord, would you give them just the needed faith this morning to take steps toward you? Would you give them supernatural power that would soften their heart, would quicken their spirit to move toward you, realizing you've already moved toward them? Would they come forward for prayer so that we could love them and serve them and care for them? And God, would you make us leaders, leaders that are fit for you, don't have a sense of big dealness or think highly of ourselves, but rather see ourselves as servants, as stewards of this good gospel message you've given us. Pray this in your name. Amen.